Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and we're delighted to see all of you here this evening. The Writers Lives program series that the Pratt presents throughout the year, and this is actually our first one of the fall season, um, they are supported in part by a very generous grant from PNC Bank, and we like to thank them for their support. Um, the Ivy Bookshop is out in the hallway, and they have copies of Amy's book for sale, and she will be signing after the reading. It's a great pleasure to welcome Amy Stewart to Baltimore and to the Pratt Library. We all know Amy as the author of the New York Times bestsellers The Drunken Botanist, Wicked Bugs, Wicked Plants, and Flower Confidential. With her new book, Girl Waits with Gun, she's turned to fiction. But it's fiction based on a true story, the forgotten story of one of the nation's first female deputy sheriffs. Her name was Constance Cop, and she was a character in her own right. Um, Amy Stewart lives in Eureka, California, where, she, where her husband owns a bookstore, and she writes. Um, she's the recipient of a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, the American Horticultural Society's Book Award, and, the, and, and an International Association of Culinary Professional Food Writing Award. So please join me in welcoming Amy Stewart, the Pratt. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. <laughs> How are y'all doing? Good. Well, thank you so much for coming out. Um, before I get started, I want to, um, first of all, just say how important libraries are and always have been to me as a writer, you know, from the time that I was a precocious kid, carting home 20 books at a time um, from the library to read, to now, where I live in a small town in Northern California that's six hours away from the nearest big city library. And it's my local public library who gets incredible things for me through interlibrary loan. And without that, I, it's not that I wouldn't be able to write the books, it's just that there'd be a six-hour drive every time I needed to do research, and that gets tough. So libraries mean a, a tremendous amount to me, and so do bookstores. I own a bookstore. Um, when, when we first bought our store, my husband and I, I was standing behind the counter one of those first early days and, um, people would come in and say how much they love the store and how much they love bookstores and how much they love the smell of books. And I just watched them all come in and then walk out without buying anything. And I thought, oh man, we're in trouble. I don't think this is how it works. So um, please, the, the folks at Ivy Bookshop, please drop in and support them. What I like to do, since uh, I give myself the world's greatest employee discount, as you can imagine, I buy all my books from my own store, but I go to other bookstores and I buy gifts for people. So at the holidays, everybody gets a gift, a, a book as a gift. You know, I figure they're affordable, they're easy to wrap, they're easy to ship, and uh, a sweater never changed anybody's life. So... That's my, that's my tip for you, is, um, is uh, support your bookstore so that they will continue to thrive and be there. Well, let me start by telling you a little bit about how this book came into being. I was working on my last book, uh, which was called The Drunken Botanist, and I was writing about a, um, a gin smuggler named Henry Kaufman. Now, this is not an actual picture of Henry Kaufman, but uh, as someone who has employees myself, I love it that somebody felt the need to write out some instructions, like, do I got to draw you a diagram of how this works? The liquor comes in on the boat, we put it in the car. So anyway, I was writing about this bootlegger, and I just wanted to know if uh, this Henry Kaufman had done anything else noteworthy that I might want to include in the book. So I went searching through the New York Times archives, um, looking for this name, Henry Kaufman. And I turned up an article in 1915. I never, I never did figure out if it was the same Henry Kaufman, but this story really interested me. Uh, this, this Henry Kaufman owned a silk dyeing factory in Patterson, New Jersey, 
And he was driving his car down the road in Patterson, and he ran into a buggy being driven by these three sisters, Constance, Norma, and Florette Cop. He destroyed their buggy. They got into a dispute over whether or not he was going to pay for the damages, and that escalated until pretty soon he was firing shots at their house and throwing bricks through windows, threatening to burn their house down, sending them kidnapping threats. I mean, basically, they got run into by the wrong guy, and it just unleashed a world of hurt on these three sisters. So I just read this one article and thought, well, this is very interesting. So I kept digging and looking for more about these three women. And pretty soon, as the day went on, I was starting to compile a little file. I found an article about the actual crash where he ran into them. Um, I found this hilarious piece. Uh, I love the newspaper illustrations from 100 years ago. So they turned to the sheriff for help uh, in fighting back against Henry Kaufman, and the sheriff issued them revolvers and taught them how to shoot. That, can you imagine? You go and you say, this man's harassing us, and he says, all right, girls, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a gun. If he comes back, this is what, that's really what happened. So they were living out in the country by themselves, just the three of them, and uh, the sheriff was able to station deputies there some of the time, but he couldn't be there all the time, and he taught them how to defend themselves. It, uh, this story got picked up by the media pretty quickly, and they had a field day with it. You know, I think in those days, any time a woman did anything the slightest bit unusual, it just made papers everywhere. And, you know, in those days, newspapers were really our form of entertainment, right? We'd, I mean, we certainly didn't have the Internet and television, but we didn't even really have radio yet. So newspapers were it. And there were like seven daily papers in circulation in this little uh, remote part of Bergen and, and Passaic County, New Jersey. So they really had a field day with it. Um, the title of the book comes from a newspaper article about the night that uh, Constance Cop participated in a sting operation where she and the sheriff went and stood on a street corner. Constance had a gun in her handbag, and she sort of stood alone in a conspicuous location on a street corner trying to catch this guy. Uh, he had been sending blackmail letters threatening to kidnap their youngest sister, Florette, threatening to blow up the house if she didn't deliver $1,000 um, to a woman in black on a street corner. It was all this kind of mystery and intrigue. And I love these headlines. I love this Miss Cop annoyed for months. Like, you don't want to annoy Miss Cop because she's going to come stand on a street corner. So... That was my day. I spent a day just gathering some of that up, and I found it to be so um, engrossing that I think I kind of lost track of time. My husband came home from the bookstore. He runs our bookstore, and it's normal for us to kind of sit down at the end of the day and have our cocktails and talk about how the day went. Um, this is exactly what we look like every day at the end of the day. So he said, you know, well, all right, what plant were you working on today? Because I was writing The Drunken Botanist, which is all about plants and booze. So that was sort of our normal conversation. And I said, well, no plant today, but I found this amazing story about these women. You have to hear this. Uh, and after I told it to him, he said, you know, we have an Ancestry.com account through the bookstore. So if you want to look these women up, we can find them in census records. We can find... Um, birth certificates, all kinds of things. So that's exactly what I did. Like that night is when this began. I started finding them in census records, and I started putting together other documents, and they really became, you know, they became real people to me that night. You know, I really had evidence of where they lived and what they did. So I was really intrigued by them, and I was intrigued by this story. But I had work to do. You know, I had to finish writing The Drunken Botanist and get that on its way. So I went back to my full-time job and finished writing my book. But whenever I had a little bit of free time, I would start digging into their story a little bit more and seeing what else there might be to find. 
I mean, you have to understand nothing has been written about these women in a hundred years. No one's written a book about them. Uh, there's no Wikipedia page about the cop sisters. I mean, this was a completely forgotten story that I just stumbled into and started to reassemble. So it really did sort of have the feeling of a treasure hunt. I'd go digging and see if I could find a little, little bit more here and there. And, uh, like every good treasure hunt, there was a map. <laughs> I hired a, a, a genealogist in New Jersey to get some courthouse records for me that I couldn't get from California. And one thing she found was this old property uh, map that you can you can maybe see. Does the, do I have a pointer here? Yeah, you can see their names. So this is the land that they owned. And even though the street names have changed, I was able to overlay it over a modern map and find out where it was. And um, I saw this creek running through their property. And in all the articles about all these months when Henry Kaufman and his gang of thugs were harassing them, there's all these stories about the creek. The youngest sister, Florette, would go down to the creek and somebody would shoot at her from across the creek. So uh, it was amazing to me that I could actually see that on a map. I mean, it sort of, again, made it all the more real uh, to me. So then... I got on a plane and I went to New Jersey and found the creek and, and stood in the very creek where my character got shot, which is, or shot at, I should say. They didn't succeed in shooting her. Um, but it was an amazing thing. You know, here I'd been in California. I'd been sort of imagining this story, imagining these places, trying to figure out what really happened and how I might tell the story. And so then to actually get to go there and to follow their footsteps, and to stand in the same places where these women stood was just so remarkable to me. I went to the street corner where the girl waited with the gun in Patterson. And this building uh, looks like it may be just old enough that it could have been there in the 1910s. And I found myself kind of walking along the side of the building and like running my hands over the bricks, like Constance could have touched one of these bricks. I mean, nobody has ever been as excited to go to Hackensack, New Jersey (laughs) as I was. This was all just so amazing and remarkable to me to be in this place that had been starting to come to life in my mind. So um, I also, you know, I went to the courthouse. I did a little digging myself. I turned up some of the harassing letters that Henry Kaufman was writing to these three women. So when you read the book, you'll see the text of these letters, and almost all of them are the real letters that he wrote. So I have them word for word. And this is something that was never published anywhere. I just had to go and dig it out. I also went looking for, I I said that Henry Kaufman owned a silk factory. um, And and at that time, Patterson, New Jersey was a city of silk mills. That's what the whole city was doing. And Kaufman uh, was a silk dyer and finisher. So I went looking for his factory. I had the address. And what I found was a vacant lot. But right next door to the vacant lot was this old silk dyeing factory. So it might be his, it might not. But for me, writing these scenes that take place in his factory or near his factory, it was wonderful to be able to go and and stand 100 years later uh, in the street where my characters would have stood as they were were, um, working out their differences or failing to, as the case may be. I also went to the jail. So uh, the, the, one of the key people in this story is the sheriff who agreed to help these three sisters catch this guy. You know, because Henry Kaufman owned a silk factory, he was a very powerful man. Uh, the silk industry really had the police in their pockets and the courts in their pockets. So you couldn't really go up against these guys. And a lot of people refused to help them. The county prosecutor wouldn't help them. But Sheriff Heath Wood, he was a good guy. He was very progressive, very reform-oriented. He had this idea that he wanted to get at the root causes of poverty and crime. He was one of the first sheriffs to bring medical care into the jail, church services, education, health care. He did all that. So here he is. This is him uh, right here. And uh, he lived here in the jail. So he had an apartment 
he, I've actually been inside and I've been in his apartment where he lived with his wife and children. In those days, if you were the sheriff, you ran the jail personally. You didn't sit in an office somewhere and you lived there. This jail, as you can see, looks like a dungeon and they built it that way on purpose. It was brand new when he took it over and their idea was that it should look so terrifying that people would be afraid to go in it and wouldn't commit any crimes. Um, you can see how well that turned out. I even went, oops, I skipped ahead. Let me go back. I even went to the cemetery and I found their graves. Um, it was, uh, I, they, they don't have individual markers. They just have one, uh, one marker for the whole family. I have a little diagram that shows where they're, where they're buried in that plot. And it was an amazing thing for me because I'd really gotten very interested in these women. I'd really come to care about them. And it was so really strange and and wonderful, but also kind of sad to go to the cemetery and know that these people that I've been writing about and who who were very real to me were literally six feet under my feet. You know, there they were. I was like, I wish y'all would wake up for a minute because I have a lot of questions for you. (laughs) You know, it was a strange feeling. But let me get into these photographs now. Um, One of the great things that happened is not only did I find some newspaper photographs, but I tracked down some family members who were able to share pictures with me and also some family stories about about these women. So this is Constance. She's the oldest of the three sisters, and I I tell the story from her point of view. It's written in the first person in her voice. She was 35 when this began. She'd been... uh, She was unmarried. She'd been living at home um, her whole life. She had tried to get an education and a job. She first tried to be a nurse. Her mother shut that down. She tried to get some kind of course in the law, which probably meant like legal secretary kind of work. Her mom wouldn't let her do that. So um, she really wanted a career. She wasn't interested in marriage, but that was very hard for her to do in 1914. So she was kind of stuck at home. Florette, the youngest, was 16 when the story began. Um, Very pretty, very fashionable. She was a very talented seamstress. She made all her own clothes. She probably made all of Constance's clothes, too, because Constance was about six feet tall and weighed 180 pounds. She was a big woman, and it probably would have been hard to find clothes to fit her. Um, But in real life, um, Florette was always very fashionable, very beautifully dressed. She was about five foot two, very, very petite, little, um, lovely thing, and very theatrical, very interested in drama and the theater. I have newspaper clippings about her entering singing competitions in Patterson. So, you know, I have this kind of sense of her, of what she was like at the time. And then the middle sister, Norma, I do not have a picture of. And it drives me crazy every day that I don't know what Norma Cobb looked like. Somebody has a picture of Norma in their attic, and they need to give it to me. It belongs to me, and it's time for it to come my way. Uh, when I find a picture of Norma Cobb, you all will all know it, because I will scream so loud that everybody will hear. So... I don't know what Norma looks like, but I was able to interview, um, I actually interviewed Florette's son. Um, Florette being the youngest, she happened to have children later in life, and her son is 80 years old, living in New Jersey, and was able to tell me um, about his mother, obviously, and also about his Aunt Norma, who lived with them for a while when he was a little boy and she was in her 70s. So I know something about Norma, even though I've never seen a picture of her. I know that she was very stubborn, very opinionated, extremely judgmental, distrustful of strangers, really did not like very many people at all. Um, She would tell you exactly what was on her mind. She never held back. Very blunt talker. And... um, she kind of, re- she, she would hold a grudge, you know, like she, she, cause she remembered everything that ever happened and was just waiting for the day when she could bring it back up and remind you about it. She was that kind of person. And I thought, you know, I know women like that. I know her. Uh, we all have, you know, that aunt in our family, right? Who she's the one, she's going to show up at the hospital when you have your baby just to tell you that she doesn't like what you named your baby, but she's going to be there. She's always going to be there. She always shows up. 
so I kind of love Norma right away because I totally understand her as a total curmudgeon. Um, so uh, someday I'll get to see a picture of her and I hope she fits the image that I have in my mind of her. But I needed some way to humanize Norma if I was going to write about her in a fictional way. You know, the, this, the sort of woman that I'm imagining and the sort of woman I feel like I kind of know who's like this maybe doesn't like people that much, but maybe has like a little dog that she adores or something like that. And I didn't want to give her a little dog, but I gave her carrier pigeons. Technology of the future. You know, in 1914, um, somebody like Norma easily could have believed that uh, telephone wires are never going to stretch all the way across the country, so it's never going to be a practical form of communication. And besides, the operator is always listening in, so you can never have a private phone call. And telegraph, same problem. The, uh, there's operators on either end who are looking at every, every word that gets sent through. So the only form of reliable, secure communication is, of course, the carrier pigeon, right? Ironically, this may actually still be true today. We're starting to find out. <laughs> anyway, so um, this gave me a chance to become very interested in carrier pigeons and how they actually really in real life were used for communication uh, still into the 1910s. Doctors would take uh, issue them to patients who lived in rural areas. So uh, you could go home with a carrier pigeon and send an update a day or two later about how you were doing, and the pigeon would, of course, fly back to the doctor's office because that's where it had been homed. So that stuff was still going on. So I had a lot of fun with that. I had a lot of fun with, uh, with Norma and her pigeons. You can see here, this is Constance and Florette together. So you can see that Constance was really a pretty substantial woman. And uh, she may not have known her own strength until she came up against this Henry Kaufman guy. I was also very lucky to get hold of a letter that Constance wrote. One of the family members has this one letter, and she's thanking one of the deputies who helped with this case. So it's actually written during the time period that I was working on. And it was so amazing to me to get to read her in her own words and to see her own handwriting and especially to see her signature. You know, I think, um, it, I don't know if any of you guys have done your family's genealogy, but it's always amazing when you turn up like your great grandmother's signature and you get to see how she wrote her name. There's something so personal about that. Uh, other people that I uh, found out a little bit more about, this is Sheriff Heath. You saw him in, in another picture. I love this picture of him. I, I feel like he's just a good, decent guy. He's serious. He takes his job very seriously, but a really good person. And, you know, Sheriff Heath was um, one of the people that I knew the least about in the sense that I could never turn up any family members. The hard thing about tracking down family members once you get two, three generations away is you start having daughters, and they get married and change their names, and it's easy to kind of lose track. So a few nights ago, I was in Brooklyn, and somebody asked me if I'd found any of his family, and I said no. I hoped I would. Um, and of all the people I still wanted to talk to, it would be someone in Sheriff Heath's family. And maybe now that the book is out and it's been in the, you know, on, on uh, National Public Radio and in the New York Times, maybe someone would see it. Well, I went home that night and I had an email from somebody who knew Sheriff Heath when he was a little boy and was very good friends with Sheriff Heath's grandsons and has now put me in touch with his grandsons and great-grandsons. So literally like this week, I'm getting to sort of connect with his family and find out more about him, which is so exciting to me. Anyway, other people that I was kind of able to track down, this is the county prosecutor who refused to help them, John Corder. He's a minor character in my novel, but it was still neat to get to see a picture of him. And I was in um, Bergen County, New Jersey, where this story takes place just a few nights ago. And somebody came up to me after my talk and said, you know, my husband's family is named Corder, and he's named John Corder after some grandfather or great-grandfather. I wonder if it's the same family. And I said, well, I don't know, but let's exchange email addresses, and I'll tell you what I know about my John Corder, and we'll see if they match up. And I said, I will have to warn you, though, he's kind of the villain in my novel, so I need to apologize for that. He's sort, of the, he's sort of the bad guy who didn't care about what happened to them. And she said, oh, no, that sounds like my husband's family. I think we have the right guy. <laughs> so we'll see. 
Uh, this is another minor character, but um, somebody I had a lot of fun with. Uh, John Ward was an attorney who worked a lot with Sheriff Heath and would go on in later years to have many more dealings with the Cop sisters. So uh, even though he's a real person who was really involved with their lives, he wasn't as involved with this case. So I gave him a fictional role in this case because I wanted to get him into the story early. Uh, and I loved these pictures, which I got from his family. I, I just looked at his face and, and I just thought, oh, I know this guy. I know him. This is going to be fun to write. And here he is with his soon-to-be ex-wife, Flora. You can probably tell by the look on her face that this is, this is not going to last. He was kind of a womanizer. You might also get that just from looking at him. And um, I, he had a law partner, Peter McGinnis. It was the firm of Ward and McGinnis. And this was a big law firm in Patterson, New Jersey at the time. And Peter McGinnis went on to be a legislator and a judge. And I have a picture of Peter McGinnis when he's much older and in his robes and looking very somber and serious and austere. But I couldn't find anything about him from when he was younger. And I thought, so I went into Ancestry.com to search for photographs of Peter McGinnis to see if his family had maybe put something up from when he was closer to this age. And I couldn't find one, but I did find this other picture of another guy named Peter McGinnis. And I loved his face so much that I said, that's it, I'm adopting you. You're going to be my Peter McGinnis for this story. Don't you love him? Don't you just want to squeeze those cheeks? He is so adorable. And I can totally see the two of them as college roommates and law partners. So uh, when you read about Peter McGinnis, that's, that's my guy. You know, one of these days, I'm going to put this picture up, and somebody's going to raise their hand and say, that's my great-grandfather. What do you think you're doing? <laughs> well, until that day comes, that's him. Even uh, another minor character, the, the cop sisters had an older brother who was um, always trying to get them to move in with him. You know, in those days, unmarried women really didn't live by themselves. You were sort of expected to go, some male relative needed to take you in. Remember, at this time, we didn't have the vote. Um, it was very hard for us to conduct a lot of business transactions on our own. It was hard for us to do banking. We really didn't have full personhood as, as women. We were really treated like the property of a man in a lot of ways. Um, it wasn't that much earlier before 1914 when women actually couldn't own property because we were property and property can't own other property. I mean, we're just coming out of that era. So uh, they had a, a brother who insisted kind of that they move in with him because that's what you did with your unmarried female relations. And they refused to do that. His wife, Bessie, um, this is a photograph of his wife when she's uh, obviously much older, but I just loved this picture. She reminds me of my own grandmother a lot, and, and I felt like I, I understood her from this one picture. She actually reminds me of several women in my family. So it helped me to write about her as a young woman just to see, just to see this great photograph. I never could find a picture of Henry Kaufman, but even finding this directory listing gave me some ideas. I knew that he owned the factory with his brother, and I saw this directory listing. I didn't see another Kaufman on here, and I thought, well, maybe it's, it's his sister and his sister's husband. Maybe he really owns the factory with his brother-in-law, and maybe that's who this Garfinkel is. So if you read the book, you'll see that Henry Kaufman in the book has a, has a sister named Marion Garfinkel, who is tired of his shenanigans. And on one hand, feeling like she has to kind of defend him and protect him, and on the other hand, is tired of seeing his, his drinking and his rowdiness and his gambling and his driving around in his fast car and running into people and his gang of thugs that he hangs out with and ruining the family business, and she's had it and she wants him out. So all of that came out of this directory listing in this name, Garfinkel. So she's fiction, but that's what gave me the idea. Now, um, because I do a lot of research for my, my nonfiction books, I'm just in the habit of going as, as deep and as wide as I can with the research. And so I was very curious about what Patterson, New Jersey was like at that time, because I didn't know anything about it. I live in California. So I'll just show you a few pictures, give you an idea. It was a town dominated by the silk industry. 
Alexander Hamilton actually first had the idea of creating a, a corporate city in America. He wanted Patterson, New Jersey to be a city that was entirely owned by shareholders and that was run not by a city council, but by a board of directors. He didn't quite get his wish. That's not quite how it worked out. But basically, the whole town was silk mills, and the silk industry totally ran the town. They completely picked the mayor and the city council and the police and the judges and everybody. So that really is what it was. Now, um, I found one picture of a silk dyeing factory. So I have no way of knowing if this was Henry Kaufman's factory, but there's some scenes that I write that are inside the factory, and they're based entirely on this picture of what it would have been like to work in one of these places. The Patterson silk strikes of 1913 are sort of the backdrop to this novel. Um, It all happened a year before my book begins, but it's still percolating and still in the news. The factory owners wanted workers to work longer hours and operate four looms at a time instead of two, but they didn't want to pay them any more money. And the workers were not idiots. They realized that the factory owners were going to be much more profitable and put a lot more money in their own pockets without sharing it with the workers who are making it possible for them. I realize this is a completely foreign concept today and has no relevance to what's going on in the world right now, (laughs) but that's what was happening then. And tens of thousands of workers went out on strike in Patterson. And uh, factory workers as far away as New York and Pennsylvania went out on strike in solidarity. The strike went on for six months. And it was organized by the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW, you know, the Wobblies. And there were a lot of famous people in Patterson uh, organizing this strike. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, early uh, suffragist and uh, labor organizer, was there. And Margaret Sanger, um, also suffragist, labor organizer, and early advocate of birth control for women, she was there. And uh, Jack Reed, you know, so if you, yeah, yeah, so if you saw the movie Reds, you remember Warren Beatty's character. Jack Reed was in Patterson for these strikes. He was in jail most of the time, but he wrote some wonderful uh, dispatches from the Patterson jail that really give a sense of what was happening on the ground every day. Uh, so, but the other thing that I found out is that the strike went on for six months. The workers couldn't afford to buy food. The union set up relief tents and you could go every day and get food, but the relief tents were always running out of food and the workers couldn't afford to feed their children. So the union organized for the workers to send their children to families in New York city who were sympathetic to the cause and would feed and shelter the children until the strike ended. Uh, here's a picture of these kids going off with little notes pinned on their coats to go live with complete strangers uh, in the city. Could you imagine having to do this with your kids? Just send them off to go who knows where because you can't feed them. So that's what happened. Here they are in a very makeshift-looking wagon being carted off. It looks like a wagon that might have been used to haul cattle or something like that, and they're taking these kids off to the city. So I found one little hint, just almost really just a footnote, that suggested that some of these children didn't come back. And if you think about it in those days, uh, maybe a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old could get work in New York um, in a store or a factory. And also, You know, kids got shuffled around a lot in those days. If you go back in your own family, you'll probably find stories of kids getting dropped off with family members, even getting dropped off in an orphanage for a few years. Kids really moved around. So there are some kids who didn't come back. And that gave me an idea of a way to create a fictional character and weave it into the story of a a young woman who worked in Henry Kaufman's factory who got caught up in all of this. And Constance kind of gets drawn in to her problems and um, and so it gave me a way to explore the history of the silk strikes because I was totally geeking out over the silk strikes. As you can tell, I got very interested in it. Uh, so it kind of gave me a way to explore some of that story. Now, um, I just want to say, and then I'll read from the book, and I realize I don't have the book up here with me. It did not magically appear on the podium Can somebody run out and just grab one? Oh, you'll let me borrow yours? Thank you. Oh, sorry. Great, thank you. 
just come get it back from me. I promise not to steal it. I have a box of them at home. Anyway, I just want to say at the end uh, of my little slideshow here that to me, as much as this is a story about a crime, and as much as this book is getting talked about as kind of more like crime fiction, to me it's really a story about a family. You know, it's a story about these three sisters and what kept them together and what might eventually bring them apart. I have, uh, oh, and and three sisters plus some pigeons, I guess I should say. Um, I have uh, so much about their lives. You wouldn't believe it. I have hundreds of newspaper articles. I've put so much together. And what happened to them next after this book is over is equally remarkable. Uh, there's, there's more books to come. I'm, I've written the second one. It's, I gotta, I gotta go home and put some finishing touches on it, but this time next year it'll be out. It's officially done and, and ready to go. And, uh, I'll keep writing about them until somebody stops me. But basically their story that begins with this car crash and this crazy year in their lives really catapulted them into a whole new world and changed everything for them. And they've got this, there's this overarching arc to what happens to them next that has kind of a beginning and a middle and an end that I think is going to take some number of novels to complete. I'm almost afraid to say how many because I'm afraid my publisher will stop taking my phone calls. But we'll see. As long as, as, long as they remain interested and I keep having fun, there's many more to come. So that's who they are. And um, I thought what I would do is I would read just a little bit. Let me see if I can get to this. I wanted to try a little different section that I haven't done before and see what you think of it, but I don't remember the chapter number. You think I would know where things are in my own book, and yet I do not. Um, But hold on a second. I'll get to it. Um, What I really wanted to do was I wanted to... I guess I would say I wanted to really have this novel sound like Constance is sitting in a chair telling it. So I spent a lot of time uh, reading it out loud and trying to get it in her voice. I even dug up a videotape I have of my own great-grandmother speaking directly to the camera at a family reunion 20 or 30 years ago. She was born in Pennsylvania in 1905, and my women were born in New York uh, starting in about 1878 and into the 1890s. So she's the only, my great-grandmother is the only person I knew in real life who was at all close to them in terms of region and age and I, you know, women at that era spoke in a very particular way, very declarative, I think, very forthright. Um, uh, um, none of the none of the little vocal tics that we have that young women have today. So I I imagine Constance as someone who speaks in this very forthright way. I read it out loud a lot when the uh, when the audio book was made. The narrator told me that she could tell I'd been reading it out loud a lot because she didn't stumble the way she sometimes can if things sound too written. But I thought what I would do is read this little section between Constance and Norma. So they are sort of the two older sisters, and they're the ones in charge of kind of running the household and worrying about Florette. And uh, what's happened here is that uh, Constance and Florette have gone into town, and they ran into this factory girl uh, who got caught up in the children's evacuation of the silk strikes. And Constance is getting a little bit drawn in to what happened to this young woman. Um, But Norma doesn't want her to be. Norma wants her to stay out and stay away from Henry Kaufman. This is bringing a lot of trouble to us, and we need to forget about this and move on with our lives. So they're sort of at this point where they're trying to figure out, are we going to engage with this guy, or are we going to let it go and hide under the bed and hope he goes away? Now, um, Constance and and Florette get home from their adventures in the city, and and Florette tells a whole streak of lies about where they've been and what they're doing because she knew Norma was going to disapprove. So later that night, Norma comes into Constance's bedroom and, uh, and sits down on the edge of her bed and says, Green African parrots? What about them? Where did Florette get the story about the man selling green parrots on the street? You didn't expect me to believe that, did you? One of the little jokes in this book, I should say, is that every time Florette tells a lie, birds are sort of involved in some weird way. You can always tell when she's making up stories. 
I had to smile. Now I was surprised you did. Well, I didn't. This has to do with Henry Kaufman, doesn't it? Well, in a way, yes, it does. I can't believe you would take Florette to see that man. We hardly let her out of the house for years, and now you're parading her in front of a criminal. Why would you... But it wasn't Mr. Kaufman. It was a girl from the factory. We don't know any girls from factories. Well, I saw her when I went to Mr. Kaufman's office, and we ran into her on the sidewalk today. She she thought I was in a different sort of trouble with him. Different sort of trouble, she said, looking up and fixing those sharp eyes on me. How many different sorts of trouble does Mr. Kaufman have on offer? The girl, whose name is Lucy, don't tell me her name. I don't have to tell you any of this. No, tell me, what about her? Uh, She had a baby. Oh, and she asked for your expertise? Norma raised an eyebrow at me. Norma, the baby's gone missing. Lucy thinks Mr. Kaufman had something to do with it. Why would he care about a factory girl and her baby? It's his child. Norma ran her fingers through her wet hair. Mr. Kaufman's morals sink lower with every passing day. By Wednesday, he'll be a murderer. Lucy thinks he's kidnapped the boy, so I suppose... Do you not agree with me, Norma said, stretching out on my coverlet and putting her blessedly clean feet against my pillow, that a man who carries on with factory girls and then kidnaps their children is the sort of man with whom the cop sisters would rather not become better acquainted? I do, I said, but don't you think it's terrible what happened to that girl? Norma propped herself up on an elbow to get a better look at me. I do think it's terrible what happens to girls who get themselves into trouble, but we've had enough trouble already. I just feel that someone should try to help her. That feeling will pass. She rolled off my bed and stood over me with her arms crossed. Francis and Bessie are having us over for a roast. I told her you'd do the peas. Nobody likes my peas, I said. But we like having you do them, she said. Now go to sleep and don't think about that girl anymore, and I won't either. This seemed to be a satisfactory conclusion to her, so she slipped out and closed the door gently, leaving me alone in the dark, willing myself not to think about Lucy Blake. So, uh, that's the cop sisters, and that's their world. I, um, I have to say, in the, you know, when I, when I first stumbled into this story, I've been writing nonfiction for a long time, but um, I've, I, in between every nonfiction book was sort of a failed novel. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of novels in drawers. So I'd been thinking for a while about that. And there was something about the process of discovering them, kind of what I just showed you, the process of getting to know them, that was so much fun for me. And I wanted readers, I wanted other people to have as much fun with them as I did. And I thought I could accomplish that in fiction in a way that I couldn't in nonfiction. I also knew that if I told it as fiction, I could fill in some of the gaps. So everything that really happened is actually in here. But where I don't know what happened, I stitched it together with fiction. And there's a section in the back that explains what's real and what isn't. Um, and, uh, it's been an amazing thing for me getting to know them and especially getting to know their family, um, who were remarkably generous and open to talking to a complete stranger who was going to do a a novelization of one of their ancestors' lives. And, uh, they've read the book and given it their seal of approval, which was a huge relief for me. And, uh, and I'm not stopping. So there, there are more in the works and a lot more research to be done and hopefully new discoveries. I very much hope that I'll, you know, be back next year with some new little nugget that I've managed to dig up about these three sisters. So why don't we, uh, stop and, uh, and maybe have a little time for questions. I do have a lot of questions for you guys. So I'm glad we have a little time for this. Um, the first thing I ought to ask is, before we, before we talk about it at all, has anyone read it already? It's only the second week since it's been out. You've read it. Oh, you're almost done. All right, well, I found this out the hard way when I was in Boston. I learned that if people have read it, 
Uh, what they really want to know is about this family secret that's at the heart of the novel, and people really seem to be curious about how I found that out. So I have to warn you, no spoilers to other people in the room. If you want to talk about that, we have to go huddle in a corner and do it afterwards. Did you have a question? But you have a microphone. All right. Fantastic. Okay, very good. We'll start over here. Will the book be in the library that you can check out? Absolutely. Yes. We can guarantee that. I don't have a question. I usually don't need a microphone either. But, um, so my, we have a lot of family stories. We grew up in New Jersey. Oh, in, you did? In Garfield, New Jersey. Oh, oh on a, okay. On, uh, my, my ancestors came from France. They were needlepointists, and so they married into a mill family. Wow, and I, yeah. I anticipate a lot of... Um, both my parents are deceased, but a lot of the stories rekindling, whether they're truthful or not. But my mother's, uh, my grandmother was sent away also because of the strikes in Gar. It might have been Patterson. She was. She was. Wait, your your grandmother was in the children's evacuation because she. Yeah. So my mother would be uh, ninety. So yeah, it was my grandmother as a child was sent away, um, and then they moved and resided in Teaneck, yeah. away from Garfield eventually. Yeah. But I never kind of linked what my mother used to tell me about with grandma leaving. And I even, the youngest of five, I'm like, no, it was mom that left, not grandma. My sister's like, no, it was grandma. Mom wasn't old enough to leave. But I'm going to, this will promulgate me to investigate a little bit more. Because one living, there's one sibling that's living of my mother's family. And um, she's 88 and she's cognizant. And I'm going to. Get in there. Get in there. And then I want. And then I want you to email me and tell me all about it. Seriously, I'm dying to know. I mean, to be able to to be able to hear kind of firsthand or secondhand accounts of a children's Maybe. evacuation. Do you have a sense of how long she was away? Um, they didn't have a lot of family around at that time, so they sent. Both, and they were, um, it was a matriarchal family, so they yeah. were very upset at having to send the children away. Yeah. So it was quickly thereafter that my um, great grandmother left her husband on the mill and went and found a place where she could live with oh, the mills. Oh. Because, and they, that's where they ended up leaving Garfield and going to Teaneck. Yeah. And, and then my mother's family all grew up in Teaneck and everything. But It's such an amazing story. And it's interesting because I've read a lot of news. I, I read the newspapers of the day, right? Because it's one thing to read history that's written now about what happened, but it's another to read what the coverage was like in the moment and what people thought about it. And the children's evacuation was very political. You know, the, the mayor of Patterson, like I said, totally in the pocket of the factory owners, he claimed that, um, that they were just doing this as an act of showmanship, that evacuating the children was a media ploy to win sympathy for the strikers. But and see, and my, my question is, so the children's evacuation was the workers' children? Yeah. And my grandmother was the mill owner's child. So they were afraid of kidnapping okay. of the mill owner's oh. children. He wasn't the mill owner, but he was the head guy, the head accountant at the mill. And you don't think he would have struck with the workers? You think he would have? I don't know. Okay. On the other side of the family, they were all supposedly communists because they were in, in part of you know, the, the, those kind of... The, they were wobblies. They were Bolsheviks. Yeah. 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 On my mother's side, no way they would. I don't think they would have. But maybe. All right. Well, if you find out, go to my website, send me an email. I seriously want to hear from you. I would so love to know about that. Yeah, amazing. What what else? I think up here in front. So it seems like through your, his, your historical research, you do find out a lot about these characters, and I'm sure you get your own sense of who you think they are. Yeah. Do you ever run into research and think, oh, man, this is not what I had imagined, or it kind of blows your mind of rewriting the characters in a way? Well, yeah, yeah you know, um, with the three sisters themselves, I think I know as much as I can possibly know. I, there's no well, there's no one alive who knew them except for Florette's son, and uh, there's really no one else. So as far as what they were like, you know, one thing I have to remind myself is that what I've done is I've taken a true story and all these real people and real events and real places, and I've created a fictional version of all of that. And I have to let my characters be fiction, because if I don't, 
I'll be so concerned about sticking to the truth that I'll just stop when I don't have information. And I can, it's almost like a physical feeling I can get when I'm like doing research into their real lives. Like if I find, if I were to go home tonight or home, (laughs) where's home? Um, If I were to go back to my hotel and start digging through newspaper archives and find more stuff about Constance, I would sort of physically, like in my heart, feel connected to the real Constance. But then when I'm home writing, I have to set her aside a little bit, and I have to go create this kind of fuzzy mirror image and let her be different. So in a way, it's okay if I find out that it's different. Um, but it would kill me if I found out something better and it was too late. I'd be like, Oh, that's so much better than what I made up and I can't use it. Yeah. Um, my question is more, you mentioned that most of the letters that you use in the book are real yeah. and that maybe one or two are fictionalized. So I've always been very interested in how authors incorporate real letters into their fictional mm-hmm books because does it work with the narrative how do you tweak the letters that you have to create yeah Um, if you could talk a little bit more about that process yes letters I love letters in novels I love epistolary novels and at this time, people wrote a lot of letters, right? It was the only way to communicate. I mean, you read, you, uh, you read a, a biography of, uh, of someone like Georgia O'Keeffe, and she, you know, letter writing was a big part of her day every day. So I, um, I wanted there to be letters in it to let people speak in their own voice in a different way. And so what I do is I, I search for collections of letters from that era, and, um, and, and just look for archives of old letters online. You know, a lot of libraries are digitizing collections, especially fragile things that researchers maybe shouldn't handle. So, and, and then there are also wonderful, you know, guides to letter writing from the late 1800s and early 1900s that would teach people how to write letters. And these guides are hilarious because they imagine all the different situations that might call for a letter. And some of them are things like, letter of condolence for a child who drowned or something. And you're like, how is that the situation that you imagined, you know, that that people are going to need almost a form letter for? But so they end up being these really quirky situations. Letter of apology for missing an appointment for a job interview or just strange things. So I did a lot of that. Uh, mostly I just, and, and I, and I really pay a lot of attention to the words. I'm sure I made mistakes, but I, if I, if I hit on a word that I have any doubt about how common it was at that time, I go searching through books of that era. Google books is great for this. And I can see the frequency that it was used at that time to make sure I'm using words that are appropriate. I also read a lot from that period now. So I read a lot of newspapers and um, novels and just anything, magazines from that time period. Um, Google has scanned a lot of proceedings from conferences and transcripts of legislative hearings. And those things are great because they're word-for-word transcriptions of people speaking extemporaneously. And anytime I see a word that is interesting to me because it's a little unusual and it's maybe not exactly how we say it today or a little phrase, I have a file that I save all that in knowing that maybe I'll find a way to use it. Yeah, that part's been really fun. Yeah. Um, We're... (laughs) Will it be overseas? Yeah. Yes. So far, um, it's being translated into uh, French and Polish. And um, there's a UK and Australian edition, which isn't, they don't change anything, but they just put their pricing on it and tweak, tweak a few other little things. So, and hopefully more foreign stuff to come. We're only just at the beginning of that. Yeah, one more question. Yeah. Well, I know the book is, what, $28? Yes. Do you have a senior discount? <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, I have no control over the price. You know, my last book, The Drunken Botanist, I really wanted it to be under $20 because I'd seen how well Wicked Plants and Wicked Bugs did in my own store priced at $18.99. And I asked my publisher, I said, what's it going to take for this to be under $20? And uh, what it took was it had to be 
no more than 400 pages. They used some kind of thin paper, but we got it there. And I think it, I think it actually really helped the book. I, yeah, yeah, I know. I know books are, books are not cheap. What else? I saw another hand over here. Yeah. Do you think as you wrote the fiction, all the years that you wrote nonfiction of piecing together research and going the extra mile to Google and understand language, to understand an old plant that existed uh-huh. in the 18th century that doesn't yeah. exist anymore, that that played into your scenario every day as you put everything together. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It was a huge help. I mean, having done nonfiction research for so many years, I've got, I've got strong skills, and I get better with every book. With this book, I started using Evernote for the first time, which is a cloud-based way for me to organize hundreds and hundreds of disparate pieces of information. So I was actually able, I was just back in the Hackensack Cemetery looking for Sheriff Heath's grave, and I was able to pop up Evernote because I had left a little GPS coordinate in there to remind me where it was, and it was able to take me straight to his grave. So I'm, I'm getting like better and better at all of that. And the thing about my nonfiction is I was always very interested in storytelling. And even if it's two pages about a plant, I wanted to tell a story about a person. You know, not that it could kill somebody, but who had it killed? <laughs> and how can I, in just a few paragraphs, tell a story about a person and their connection with that plant? So I've always been very interested in storytelling. When I teach writing workshops, that's what we do, is we, we talk about using a novelist tools to write nonfiction. Yeah, so I love getting to do that. This story sounds very cinematic, mm. and I wonder if anyone has optioned the film rights yet. Yeah, not yet. Um, after it aired on Morning Edition, which was just a week and a half ago, uh, we got a ton of calls from Hollywood all at once. And so there's a guy who represents the film rights and TV rights for it, and he's sifting through all that right now, sending books out to everybody so they can read it. So it'd be cool if something happened, especially um, a TV series, because there are going to be more books, you know? And I have a few of the people who are interested emailed me directly to try to make an, like an extra special plea. And it was like women screenwriters in Hollywood who are really looking for interesting women that they can write about. Um, who have great credentials, who've worked on lots of impressive shows and worked with lots of important people. So generally with novels, what happens is maybe somebody options it, but then nothing ever happens. Nothing ever gets made. You know, lots of writers have built decks and swimming pools off the money they got for movies that never got made. And ain't nothing wrong with a deck and a swimming pool, but um, it would be kind of cool to see them come to life. That, That would be great. What else? Oh, yeah, go ahead. If you could hang out with one of them today, which one would it be? Oh, it would, if I could hang out with one of them, it would definitely be Constance. I'm just, there are so many things I'd like to know. I think that she would spend all of her time telling me everything I got wrong and that I would be embarrassed and humbled at the end of it. And I'd want to go back home and, and write the whole thing all over again. You know, the family, it sounds, it sounds pretty likely that there is no diary, there is no scrapbook, there are no letters. In other words, I don't think there's an archive to be had. I, I have a sense of when, when each of them died, how their things got dispersed, like I figured out who would have gotten their stuff. And, you know, I've traced those things as far as I can go, and they're not there. So unless somebody just has that box in the basement... Um, I'll never know, but there are so many things I'd like to ask her. Yeah. Do I wake up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning to write my book? No, I wake up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning to wonder what time my plane is taking off, and did I really set my alarm or didn't I, and did I return that phone call I was supposed to return, and and aren't we out of milk, and so am I going to have to get up in the morning and go get milk before I can have coffee? I I drive myself crazy with that stuff at 2 o'clock in the morning. I tend to work late morning, afternoon, into the evening is my best time. I am not a morning person. Yeah. 
I was wondering if you knew what the cop sister's father did for a living. Yes, I do. Yeah, he is absent in this story, and in real life he was absent. He was, uh, in various census records, listed as a wine merchant, and then a saloon keeper and bartender. I think he kind of spiraled downward. Um, he seems to have left the family sometime around 1890, although as any of you who do genealogy may know, the 1890 census was destroyed in a fire, and so none of us can know where people were in 1890. It's absolutely maddening. But um, he, uh, I have his addresses, and he was living in the Bowery in the Lower East Side in New York, and uh, a series of increasingly divey places, working increasingly uh, um, dismal jobs, so... Yeah, I think that's the direction his life went. Well, are we ready to wrap it up? Um, let me just say before we go, there's books out there, and I also I brought you something. Where is it? I have temporary tattoos <laughs> with Constance on them. They're super fun. If any of you are on social media and you did like a picture and a hashtag, it's all on the back here. But anyway, you could win a book, but uh, they are kind of fun. I actually put these on my parents before I left for this tour. They're in their early 70s and had never had a temporary tattoo before. And they were like, wow, these are so cool. Look at this. This is going to stay on. And uh, and my dad said, uh, he said, Amy, I'm going to need you to leave a couple of these with me because I'm going to put these on a part of your mother's body that you're not going to want to know about. And I said, okay, I'm good. I'm out. I'm leaving right now. So don't tell me about where you put them. But uh, anyway, there's some out there for you. And if you want one, please take one. Thank you all so much for having me.